Hey everyone, welcome back. Good to see you. Uh, Kevin and I are here doing another, I guess, episode of Revisiting the Road to Serfdom, going over F.A. Hayek's seminal work. Uh, if you watched our previous episodes, you'll see we're up to chapter five is what we're going to cover today. So we've done some on the introduction, which is huge and it's worth getting into. I'm not getting into it now. Um, but there is just so many releases of the book. We talked about that. And then chapters one, two, uh, three and four. And then today we're going to go over just chapter five. Um, we talked about it. We're like, cause in the other one episodes, we at least would record doing two chapters at a time. And there's just so much in chapter five that we're just going to keep it at chapter five today. And we'll probably end up doing that with six as well, but we'll see. Um, but Kevin, for the folks at home, you want to give them an update on, or not an update, but like a summary of what the last, uh, you know, last yep. content we covered, whether it's just the last few chapters or, or whatever to kind of bring them up to speed a little bit. Sure. So I believe this is chapter four. We're going to be going into now. Um, so, you know, chapter one covered all the, the introduction material. Oh, not chapter four, episode four covering chapter yep. five. There we go. Um, but, but episode one covered the introductory material. Uh, episode two covered chapter one and two episode three, they covered chapter three and four. So chapter three uh, titled individual individualism and collectivism covers how there are some instances in which a central entity like the government can play a role in certain services, but it should never uh, play that role at the expense of competition or what he calls planning against competition, you know? So the nice thing about Hayek, or you can say it's a nice thing, but he's, he's someone who he says he's not, he's not dogmatic in his laissez-faire attitude. You know, he does not believe he's not the Ayn Randian type of, uh, you know, free markets or nothing. It's like, no, the government can play a role in preserving uh, individual liberty, which is really what the free markets are supposed to do. Um, so he recognizes that and he kind of points that out a little bit in chapter three while also saying, all right, when it starts to plan against competition, when it starts to eliminate competition, that is when, uh, that central authority has gone too far and we should look to the, the free exchange rather than the government to, to help us out in this particular sector. And then chapter four uh, is called the inevitability of planning and that dives into monopolies and how they're almost exclusively created by private, private business colluding with the government and how the promise of a planned economy run by experts is one of the quickest ways to go down the road towards tyranny. Um, yep. I mean, both of those are, are really illuminating, um, you know, the, the left, the modern day left who is more of the, what we're going to call the the American version of liberalism, which is the complete opposite of the European 19th century version of liberal, liberalism, where yep. they try to get away from all forms of uh, coercion by the state, where the American version is the exact opposite, where they want to involve the state in everything. Um, but, you know, they, they they make you scared of monopolies. If monopolies are this, it just is a natural occurring thing in the world of free markets. Well, no, monopolies are almost always formed by a private business colluding with the government because it shuts out their competition and they already have those resources to be able to, you know, or normally it's through taxation or fight for 15 is a big one. You know, fight, 15, say, you helps the fight for 15 last time. It's like, yeah, yeah bring on $15 minimum wage. Like yeah, Amazon, that, that ain't going to hurt them, you know, or if it, you know, it, they have to tighten their margins. Well, guess who can't tighten their margins? The mom and pa shot up that yep. that's trying to sell the goods, some of the good, you know, of a very small fraction of goods that Amazon can. Uh, and then the other side of it is that planned economy run by experts. I mean, we talked about Dr. Fauci. I think he could even come up today, honestly, because he goes into experts again and how that kind of single-minded thinking, you know, an expert who's trying to, to get rid of this pandemic doesn't care that much about the economy or social life or all that stuff because he's just got this one area of expertise that his plan is to eliminate uh, this one thing, but it's going to be at the expense of all these other things that, you know, are not in his purview. It's, it's something he just cares a lot less about. And, and that's a great way to go down the road of tyranny. And that's where we're at. Chapter five. Yep. And uh, 
and and one thing I mean I think you mentioned earlier when we were talking that I I do agree with was you said that this chapter almost would you know make more sense you know a little bit earlier in the book um, say before than chapter it is three. now huh I think before chapter three I think this one um, you know chapter three and four really went into the economics aspect of it which is someone who loves economics I I really love that but I think you know this chapter really dives into uh, why this economic part, economics part is so important in everything else. You know, something we're going to get into a little later. It's like, if they control this little chunk of the economy directly via that direct control, they can indirectly control a whole bunch of different stuff as well. And yep. when we just think economics, you know, people, especially during COVID, they're like, well, is your, is your, you know, investments as important as human lives? Well, those things are not indirect they're not different. those yeah they're, they're not different necessarily <laughs> people yeah. think the economy is just about money no economy is about behavior that yeah. is what the, the study of the quality of life study of livelihood and it's a great way to assess you know the the health of a country is through its economy and understanding yep. uh the different behaviors in that economy totally and one thing i think that you know for people you know listening now to let you know is that you know, this is a book, one of the reasons why we're going over this, you know, this is thought I just had, um, but is worth sharing is that one of the reasons we're going over this is because it's not just because it's a neat book to read, but it's because it has a lot of relevance um, and speaks into the nature of so many things we're dealing with now um, in terms of where we're at with our government, the size of our government, the scope of our government, and like where this government is trying to trying to go. Um, and, I, and I'm not saying that, you know, we were some, you know, completely, you know, weren't bogged down with bureaucracies until Joe Biden or whoever's controlling Joe Biden got in office. Not at all. But my, my point is, is that this book speaks to a lot of the pathologies within our political system and our social system, uh, or I guess just our, I don't know what you call it, just our society today. And so that's one of the reasons why we're doing just chapter five is because chapter five has so many pieces that tie directly into what's going on right now. Um, and so we're going to try and really marry these ideas and the problems that Hayek is pointing out and map that onto where we're at now um, in, in terms of the things we're facing. Um, so that said, uh, do you care if I read this um, John Stuart Mill quote from the very beginning here? Uh, so yeah, Adam so, Smith? so uh, uh, chapter, chapter five is titled planning and democracy. Uh, yep. And surprisingly it talks about planning and democracy. So I know shocking. intro to chapter um, five. Shocking, shocking stuff. Yeah. Well, and the other thing is, you know, I think that we've covered this before, but you went over the definition of liberalism for people who maybe haven't caught the other episodes. Planning was a word that they used that was basically a way of just, and he actually gets into this a little bit at the very beginning of this chapter, but they would talk about like, we need planning. Planning is another way of saying is that the government, like there is this, there's a couple different ways that you can basically organize the society, especially on an economic level is you can give individuals the freedom and liberty to choose their own things they want to do. I value X, you value Y. We're, we're just going to live in a system where as long as my X doesn't like, like harm your Y or whatever, then I can go and pursue my thing. You go and pursue your thing. But there are some people look at that and say, well, that's chaos. No one's, no one's in charge of that. That's just chaos. So we need lack, lack so, of plan. Exactly. It's a lack of a plan. And so I think the thing I said last time was, you know, no one's telling the fish, which way to go in the ocean. But if you look at the way these schools go by each other and different fish do the different things, like it's very organized, uh, but they don't need, a, you know, Atlantis or, or the king of Atlantis or whatever his name is, um, Aquaman down there telling them to do that. But they're the planners look at society and say, this is way too chaotic. 
Um, the fact that there are some people who don't take responsibility for their lives or whatever thing, uh, or maybe I just want power, maybe I'm naive, uh, whatever. Um, so someone needs to be at the top directing all of the activities and the goals of everyone, like all of their energy towards one common goal, one common thing. So that's what planning is. And so what Hayek is talking about here is he does something similar that, that he did. Um, I believe, yeah, chapter three was called individualism and collectivism. And he's saying these two things are fundamentally different. They're fundamentally at odds. They cannot coexist. And so what Hayek is saying here is planning and democracy can't coexist permanently. We'll get into a thing at the end where some people might use democracy to bring about planning, um, but that, that doesn't mean they can coexist. It just means that you can vote yourself into despotism. Um, so here's this quote that I think really sets it up nicely from Adam Smith. He says, the statesmen who should attempt to direct private people in what manner they ought to employ their capitals would not only load himself with the most unnecessary attention, but assume an authority which could safely be trusted to no council and senate, whatever, and which nowhere be so, and which would nowhere be so dangerous as in the hands of a man who had folly and presumption enough to fancy himself fit to exercise it. Adam Smith. And so he's saying that a person like no one person or, or even just small group of people has the wisdom and the moral purity to direct all of society. They don't. And so he's saying the most dangerous people are the ones who think they could actually do it. That's the bromir thing. I could wield the ring. I can do it. Like this is corrupted everyone else, but I, I can do it. Real, real despotism or real tyranny hasn't been tried yet. Um, I'm, I'm benevolent. So that's a really good quote here that he thinks he gets into, and, and you've got a, a bunch of really good quotes here at the beginning, um, that where he gets into this thing of like, look, you, you can't, these things can't coexist. You can either have a bunch of people pursuing their own things, or you can have one group telling everyone else what to pursue, but they can't, they can't exist um, side by side. Yeah. And also what he implies here is like, you're probably not, if you're the person who wants to control everything, you're the last person who's qualified to do it. Yep. Right. Yep. Um, you know, a part of that is uh, someone who wants this much control uh, probably is going to use it in a, in a poor way. And and someone who is given this amount of control, even if they don't want it and, you know, does want to do something good with it and doesn't want to, you know, ruin or step on individual liberties and individual individual freedoms, uh, you know, is the first one to get shot in the back of the head uh, by someone who does want to use it to to uh, take out individualism uh, yep. in order for collectivism and to implement what they want. Yeah, and, and the exact opposite before uh, you get into some of those quotes that I just thought of is, so the opposite is someone who doesn't want it, right? And so you look at someone like George Washington. They wanted to make him king. They, they, they only had monarchy you know, mindset. They were cool making George Washington king. There's a lot of people who wanted to do that, and he was like, I don't want this power. He didn't really want to run for president. He didn't really want to run for re-election, and, and he did two terms. He was like, I don't want to do this. And so Smith is saying there like, don't trust a person who says, I can do this and I want to do it. Uh, people who are very reluctant, they can obviously be corrupted, but it just doesn't really happen. It takes someone that is just like that type of figure of a George Washington type to, to not do that. Um, but, but it's not common. I mean, but the person who wants it, definitely don't trust them. Absolutely. All right. Ready to dive into some quotes? Basically, I, I, I legit quoted the, the first. Let's do it. Like three pages. So just so you guys know, you guys are we're effectively going to be reading 75% of the book to you if we do all these quotes, but it was just, it was too much. The, yep. He begins, he kind of has the You're same welcome. structure for all of these different uh, chapters where he does a stream of consciousness for the first uh, few paragraphs, which is just like, 
indispensable. You need to read it. You need to follow it. You need to highlight everything. Then it gets into a lot of the context, which is important. We're not going to go through all that today because we don't want to just do a read along here. We're going to give you to how this applies today. And then at the end, he kind of summarizes with some big ideas and especially launches you into the next chapter. So the way he sets this up is, is awesome. Um, yeah. So to get into it, uh, he starts out, quote, the common features of all collectivist systems systems may be described in a phrase ever dear to socialists of all schools as the lib deliberate organization of the labors of society for a definite social goal. That is our presence that our present society lacks such conscious direction toward a single aim that its activities are guided by the whims and fancies of irresponsible individuals has always been one of the main complaints of its social critics. That's what you talked about before. It's like, there's no plan here. Yep. Like, how does this work? Like this goes directly against planning and, you know, he dove into the last chapter as to how that's not the case. It's just a bunch of people with their own individual plan pursuing their individual goals, goals and aims that, uh, you know, makes a more cohesive plan that builds an economy. This, this kind of yep. independent organism, organism and most socialists believe that shouldn't be the case. So continue in many ways, this puts the base, the basic issue very clearly. And it directs us at once to the point where the conflict arises between individual freedom and collectivism, the various kinds of collectivism, communism, fascism, et cetera, differ among themselves in the nature of the goal toward which they want to direct the efforts of society. But they all differ from liberalism and individualism in wanting to organize the whole society and its resources for the, for the unitary end and refusing to recognize autonomous spheres in which the ends of individuals are supreme. In short, they are totalitarian in the true sense of this new word, new word back then, which we adopted to describe the unexpected and nevertheless inseparable manifestations of what in theory we call collectivism. Yep. And, and one thing that I would add there to kind of help people wrap their mind around exactly what he's describing there. Um, the way I, I envision this is, so one of the things he discusses in the previous chapter is that collectivism is an ideology that has all these different species. And socialism is one species of collectivism. He says it's probably the most important one. Um, but all of anything that is collectivist, fascist, whatever, Nazism, um, communism, whatever, these are all collectivists. Anything that's like this is going to have the same, um, basically the same common features. And so what he's describing here, whenever he says, um, the, uh, it directs us at once to the point where conflict arises between individual freedom and collectivism. The various kinds of collectivism, communism, fascism, et cetera, differ between themselves and the nature of the goal towards they want to direct the efforts of society. Um, so the way I would, I, I visualize this. So there was this movie that I, I didn't watch it, but the trailer gives the premise pretty well. It's called, um, I think it was called Mortal Instruments or something like that. It was with Peter Jackson made it where the cities are all moving. Yeah, like I've, I've watched these, that. These cities are like on wheels and stuff. Okay, so... The point is, is that he's saying that whenever you have a collectivist ideology like this, that is trying to direct society, that you might have, so Nazis are trying to do something different than socialists, right? He's saying their goals are probably different, but the thing that they are constructing to achieve those goals is all the same. You're, you're putting the entire civilization on this giant mobile city and saying, we're going to drive it. Now, so Nazis might want to drive it over there. Socialists might want to drive it over here, but either way, you have this one group that is steering all of society and guiding them with their plan. And liberalism, he's saying all of those things are different than liberalism. Liberalism says, I'm not going to tell you where to go. You go where you want to go. I, I'm not trying to drive the city. 
I, I'm not trying to drive your life. I'm just trying to protect the boundaries of the city and make it where you can drive your own life. Um, but, but he's saying that they will all do the same thing, where they will build a system where everyone has to be coerced. And, and that's, this is the thing that I really want to get into that he talks about here in a minute, where it's like, you, you can't do that. You're not going to get consensus, so it's going to require coercion. And so all of these things, socialism doesn't matter how benevolent, doesn't matter how well-intentioned Bernie Sanders is, he's still building that giant apparatus that someone else can take control of that's going to require coercion to direct all of our lives. Does that make sense? Yeah, I mean, we talked about this a little bit too in previous chapters that, you know, uh, socialists hate the communists, communists hate the socialists, but they both really, really hate uh, the, the liberals. Um, so it's like, yep. you know, I, I'm a Packer fan. I want my daughter to date another Packer fan, but sometimes she might date a Bears fan. But the, what's worse than that is if she dated a soccer fan. Like it's this, the worst of all worlds and it's not <laughs> compatible, right? So, you know, it's important to understand. I have that, it on good that, authority that's, I'll say that football is gay. I don't know if you saw that article. <laughs> yes, <I did. laughs> the article about, about the, the NFL. video. Yes. Sorry, it's also lesbian and yeah. uh, all that fun uh, stuff. Yeah, um, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt your train of thought. No, no, no. <laughs> if Hayek, if Hayek were around today, I'm sure that'd be a chapter. Um, but, but yeah. And so, oh, yeah. so the the whole point there is that uh, you know these two claim to hate each other, but they they hate you more than they hate uh, each other. So mm -hmm. I think it's important to understand how they're related to each other. Uh, but to go on to the next quote, it's going to go a bit more into this quote. The social goal or common purpose for which society is to be organized is usually vaguely described as a common good, the general welfare, welfare mm. or the general interest. It does not need much reflection to see that these terms have no sufficiently definite meaning to determine a particular course of action. You know, we see this a lot um, with how vague some definitions are, right? Um, you know, yep. a, a hot topic right now, CRT and some of this you know, um, more diversity training type stuff. It is, they, it's very vaguely defined. And there's always this gotcha moment when someone rails against CRT and the other person says, well, you don't know how to define it. Well, that's, that's a feature, not a bug, right? You want to remain vague mm -hmm. so you can kind of wiggle around and make sure that you can uh, find whatever is most attractive to the person you're trying to convince. You say, it's not this thing, what everyone else said it was, but, you know, it's going to be this thing. And we're going to get into more of how, you know, it's when people don't agree on something, you can just kind of label it something else, label it the common good or the, the general welfare, the general interest, like all these, uh, you know, really point toward, you know, you might not agree about what it really is, but here's kind of a, you know, a platitude we can push on you that will sound nice. It'll be a good bumper sticker slogan, as opposed to kind of explaining to you the real thing. Yep. Yeah. If you, if you Google like this policy helps all of us. So I just did that. So you have stuff from the, the FDA, the EPA, you have stuff on um, COVID America's place in the world, the American jobs plan, uh, human rights and democracy, stuff about education, stuff about race. And so like what they'll do and, and Hayek has this quote later where he says um, the, uh, I probably should have had that right here. Okay. Um, he says the goal of planning will have been described by some such term as common welfare, which only conceals the absence of real agreement on the ends of uh, planning. And so like the point is, is that they'll use these terms like common good, common welfare or the greater good, because one, there's no, there's no definition there. What the hell does that mean? Right. What if my common good is like, I don't like this other race, you know? 
I think it's common good to get rid of them. That was certainly Hitler's goal, right? So the common good doesn't mean anything. It's a platitude on its face, but it sounds good. And the other thing, what it makes me think of is like whenever your parents say, just trust me, I know better because I said so or whatever, like it's for your own good. And maybe that's right, maybe, but sometimes it's just a dismissal to get them to shut up. And I heard this, um, I was telling you before we started that, so Dave Rubin interviewed uh, Donald Trump uh, the other day. And, you know, normally Trump interviews are, are him kind of saying the same things. Um, and so, you know, I wasn't really expecting it there to be anything new there. But one thing that Trump said that I really liked was he said, look at all of the policies put, being put forth by the Democrats. He said, these are not 50% issues. These are not 50-50. These aren't even close. And so one of the, the reasons why they're doing – they use these vague terms is because they will not get agreement from people otherwise. So it makes it so there is no guardrails on the power they're trying to seek because who – I mean what does it even mean? As soon as you give someone total authority to pursue the common good of the common welfare, well, th there is no – there is no end point to that. It's like they can do whatever they want. They just come up with new things that are the common good. Um, but the other thing is that they don't have to tell you what they're wanting to do. They're just saying, trust us. And the other thing that maybe think of that I wrote is like, you know, maybe one way we'd map that onto today is blank is a human right. So you don't say common good, but this is a human right. Healthcare is a human right. Housing is a human right. Um, having sex, you know, five times a week is a human right, guys, you know? And so like, or whatever, you know, whatever it is they're trying to say. And so, you, you know, I was mentioning like Bernie Sanders, you know, where he'll have these tweets where he's like, call me crazy, you know, maybe I'm a radical. It's a radical idea to think that um, you, you should have your teeth when you're 90 or something like that. They just lay these things out that they say that uh, the government should be involved in. And it's like if people think about the implications of it, no, no, the government shouldn't be involved in it. But but anyway, the point is, is they'll use these vague terms because it, it's a good way to get people to agree to stuff that maybe they don't agree with. Who's going to argue with the, you know, the common good? Who's yeah. going to argue I with anti-racism? the common good. Right. You know? Yeah. Who's going to argue anti-racism or justice or, you know, anything like that. But that's a double-edged sword is, is you get to advertise that, right? That's your bumper sticker slogan. And then you also get to malign the other side by saying they don't want yep. that. You know, yep. I, as a conservative, don't want these policies, but I still, I, you know, I'd like the common good. I want everyone. I want all ships to raise because in the end, that actually helps me. That benefits me. Um, but if I don't agree with their policies, they just say, well, no, you just want to benefit the rich or white people or white cis men or yep. something like that. So. It's a, it's an attack and a defense. There's, you know, and there's probably something to, to again, kind of deviate to the, the anarchists I've been listening to lately. There is something to be said to, to have the stones to say, I don't want the common good. You know, and here's why I don't know what that means. Your version of that is different than my version of it. So we should not advocate for this because as far as I know, we haven't polled every single person to ask them. And so for you to say, I'm doing this for the common good, it's like, oh, really? Did you ask everybody? Because you just asked me and I said, I don't agree. So how many other people are there like me? So it doesn't sound like it's a hug. How common is it? Hmm. Like, what are the percentages? And let's say it's 45%. In what, in what world does 45% have the right to, to declare what's the common good for the other 55%? Or vice versa? What if it's 60%? In what world do they have to declare that for the other 40%? And so, like, I do think there's an argument to be made where it's like, no, I don't think there is a common good. I don't think this is a human right. Who defines what a right is, you know, and, and you know, and who pays for that right? So, I mean, there is something you said there. But, but again, like you said, it's a double-edged sword that's used to malign people. And it, and it takes some serious, you know, chutzpah to, to say, no, I don't, I don't want that because I think it's actually immoral 
for me to declare that I would could even have the the knowledge to know what that is. And I don't believe you that you have consensus because you know John Stuart Mill, all but one. Maybe everyone else agrees. I don't. So you guys do what you want for your common good, but you're lo- you're looping me into it. That's the example I give of like, if you want to piss in your own pool, fine, but stop pissing in my pool with these policies. Yeah. So actually later in this chapter, common common good pops up again, but it, it goes more into what you said is it, it ties it to agreement, agreement yep. on, on large amounts of people and how they agree that, oh, this general thing must be improved. But once they explain the ends, it's like, oh, no, that's not what I want. And that's, that's what it force agreements. So actually, it gets it, yep. it pops back in later. But um, so mm-hmm. the the next part, he kind of goes on how it. Although these people, these these planners, want to say I'm improve everyone's lives, it's it's impossible for a central planner to account for everyone's ends, right? The, everyone's yep. uh, main goals in the in the end. And so uh, you know, this is where that contradiction lies, and where this any form of collectivism needs to move the obstruction of individualism in order to to meet its ends. So uh, he dives into that a little bit here. Uh, quote: The welfare and happiness of millions cannot be measured on a single scale of less and more. The welfare of of a people, like the happiness of a man, depends on a great many things that can be provided in an infinite variety of combinations. It cannot be adequate, adequately expressed as a single end, but only as a hierarchy of ends, a mm. comprehensive scale of values in which every need of every person is given its place. I love the hierarchy of ends. I think that's a, yep. a brilliant way to, to, to put that. To continue to direct... All our activities, according to a single plan, presupposes that every one of our needs is given its rank in an order of values, which must be complete enough to make it possible to decide among all different courses, which the planner has to choose. It presupposes, in short, the existence of a complete ethical code in which all different human values are allotted due their due place. So, like we said, it, it presupposes that everyone's value structure is the same. And it gets into this, you know, ethical code, ethical code idea in a little bit here. Um, but it's, it, it means a central planner is either assumed to kind of know everyone's goals here, or they are, which in reality, they are projecting their own ends onto everyone else. And that's yep. where the coercion comes in. That's where individualism becomes an obstacle for this collective good, their collective ends. Yeah. So, and, and the, <sighs> There's so much there. Uh, so one of the things there that is really good is he is saying that, look, if you're going to plan and direct, you have to, in order to do this ethically, right, which we'll get into the fact you can't do it ethically, so you have to do another thing <laughs> unethically. Um, in order to do that, you have to know the hierarchy of values of every individual person involved and have rank ordered them. And um, this is... No, I didn't plan this, but it brought it up, and so it made sense. So M- Michael Malice, again, in, uh, in his, his book, The New Right, he talks about um, orders of values of politicians. Yeah, I think he calls it like the Neapolitan pr- principle or something like that with ice cream. So he says, look, let's say someone says, I love freedom. I love liberty. That's like easily one of my top five favorite values. Like in terms of all the values I have, liberty and freedom is a top five value of mine. Like, come on, guys. Like that sounds good. But the problem is, is that you're going to always be, you have to, I'm not trying to paint like some kind of false dichotomy or false choice, but there are times when you have to pick what's the ascendant value. Like, look, we're either going left or we're going right. Um, And so you have to pick one. And so he says, look, let's say you have five flavors of ice cream that are your favorite. I had to write this down so I could do the math um, on the fly. But so, and in any given situation where you could pick ice cream, 
you have your five, your top five favorite flavors. And um, it, let's say Liberty is your fifth favorite value. Neapolitan's your fifth favorite flavor of ice cream if you're a lunatic. But um, so he says, look, you'll pick your first one probably 55% of the time or whatever. I just came up with these numbers off the fly. but it, 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 So you'll probably pick it a little over half. It's your, it's your number one favorite flavor. Of course, you're going to pick it over half. Your second one, you might pick 25% of the time, right? Um, it's your second flavor, favorite flavor. So that puts you, you're, you're now at 80% of the interactions. You're picking between your first and second, right? And then let's say you pick your third favorite flavor, 8%, and your fourth favorite flavor, like another 8% of the time, or, or maybe a 7% of the time, something like that. That makes it where you pick your fifth favorite flavor when given the choice, 5% of the time or less, you know, Pro maybe even less. And so the point is, is that if you have Liberty as your, your fifth favorite value, you're going to pick Liberty never, almost never over whatever these other things are. And so that's how it works with any of these hierarchies. And so what Hayek is saying here is like, in order to assume that you can do this, you have to rank order every single person's values, every single one of the, like the things that they care about the most and assume that you can somehow synthesize that with an entire population and come up with something like assuming it's not a population of clones, right? And, you know, and even if you watch movies where they clone people like uh, what multiplicity with Michael Keaton, like, one guy likes pizza a lot. One guy likes, you know, doing these other things. So the point is, is that you're not, it's not going to work. You're going to have people that are like, we are never, no one's picking my favorite flavor. No one's picking my favorite value. And, and that's so you, the point. You can't do it. Yeah. And that's the point is even if we had the infrastructure set up to accurately survey every single American and compile that information, you know, because of the, most of the problem would be to actually get information from everyone. Uh, it still doesn't matter. It's going to be such a diverse selection of priorities that you cannot satisfy everyone or even most people in that case yeah. and then that centralized authority also gets their say which normally pulls something up you know maybe that thing you like 20 percent of the time they kind of think that you should favor that you ought to do that for the collective right so they're going to yep. pull that that value up right so i mean it, it just doesn't make sense even if you have the infrastructure to compile all this data it still wouldn't yep. work and that's one of the things, you know, I think it was in um, a few Ember episodes ago that I think James Darian brought that up. You know, James Darian, Commutation Construct, smart guy. People should check him out. Um, and he brought up about how the, the more broad, like the more a, a certain thing um, is trying to direct, the more people are involved basically in, in a certain thing, the more vague you have to make it. Like the more specific the goals are, the more likely their people are going to be like, no. Like, I don't want cheese on that or, you know, or whatever. And so like you, like you ha it has to be vague. Like it has to be very loose, very broad. If you're trying to make it where people can pursue their own ends. And so you take a country like the United States, 330, 340 million people plus illegal immigrants. So, you know, 400 million. Um, yeah, I don't know if it's that many, but, but anyway, <laughs> you know what I mean? People have been saying 19 million legal immigrants for like 30 years. I'm like, is that, do we think it's that static? Is it that yeah. static? Um, Anyway, but 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 you get my point. Like you have that many people, like you're gonna get like six percent of the population that their number one value is something that is bizarre, it makes no sense. Like if you see, you seen that movie Airheads, like Brendan Fraser and uh, yo, I think Hush was in it, right? And so they're making their yeah. list of demands and like we just came up with a bunch of crazy Adam stuff. So maybe, yeah, Adam Sandler's in it, like the a football helmet filled with cottage cheese, <laughs> you know, <laughs> naked pictures of B. Arthur, like. All, they're coming with these crazy demands. Like you're going to get people who really believe that. Like they're like, no, I really want that, you know? And so you just, there is so much diversity and that's what's beautiful about humanity, but there's so much diversity and you're going to get a decent chunk of the population that their 
values are malevolent. They're going to be like, yeah, I don't like, uh, I don't like Jews or I don't like Catholics or I don't like Christian, you know, whatever. I like atheists, you know, if Westboro Baptists, I don't like gays. So how do you even do that? You know, how do you incorporate that in there? And so Hayek is saying, like, look, all of this presupposes what he calls like some agreed upon ethical code, a total ethical code um, in order to do this. And, you know, we talked about this before, and I think you had a good point about it. Um, but, you know, I, I think that we do have an ethical code. We've had that, especially at this time when it was written, like, and laws are based on ethical codes. Um, you know, the fact that I can't go to your house and like, you know, go to your front porch and, you know, slaughter your dog, you know, on your front porch, like that, that's an ethical code that we've agreed upon as a society. Um, and so we do have that, but he's talking about, it seems like what you talked to about was like ought, like what ought someone yeah. be trying to pursue? Or what ought we, someone we share, be we wanting. share similar ethical codes, but we do it for very different reasons. And that does make exactly. sense. And that, you know, I don't think I should go over there and, and, um, you know, I don't think I should be racist, not because, you know, I think uh, society has, uh, you know, must not be racist. I don't believe I, I should be racist because we're all made in God's image. That's my brother, you know, that well, mm -hmm. I'd be violating God if I were racist. That's why I yep. don't believe it. But other people who are, you know, atheists also believe not be racist just for different things. Yep. So, you know, I do think there's some wiggle room in there. Um, before I go on, all I was thinking about when you're doing your your math on your, your ice cream thing was the, the SNL uh, Norm McDonald pie chart sketch um, that I'm not even going to repeat it here, but if you haven't seen that, people <laughs> just look that up. It's hilarious. I was checking if your numbers are adding up and they're going to ask you who is doing the math for you. But um, for those of you who don't like this joke, it was written by a woman. <laughs> so do whatever you want with that. Yeah. Uh, um, so moving on. <laughs> That's uh, what you're so, talking about, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, You'll notice uh, these numbers don't add up to 100. Yeah. Um, so to dive more into the ethical code and, and, and kind of talk about what Hayek uh, was talking about here is, uh, quote, the conception of a complete ethical code is unfamiliar and it requires some effort of imagination to see what it involves. We are not in the habit of thinking of moral codes as more or less complete. The fact that we are consistently choosing between different values without a social code prescribing how we ought to choose does not surprise mm. us and does not suggest to us that our moral code is incomplete. In our society, there is neither occasion nor reason why people should develop common views about what should be done in such situations. But, but where all means to be used are the property of society and are to be used in the name of society according to a unitary plan, a social view about what we ought to do what ought to be done must guide all decisions in such a world. Yep. We should, we soon, we should soon find our moral code is full of gaps. The attempt yep. to direct all economic activity according to a single plan would raise innumerable questions to which the answer could be provided only by a moral rule, but to which existing morals have no answer and where there exists no agreed, agreed view on what ought to be done. People will have either no definite views or conflicting views on such questions because in a free society in which we have lived there has been no occasion to think about them and still less for common opinions about them so yep. this kind of goes in so the beginning to me is you know we we may have some disagreements you know on here but but the conception of a complete ethical code is unfamiliar right you and i know that murder is not ethical therefore we should not do it even if there was no law there to stop us depends from on who it. 
yeah yeah right um but uh the imagination comes in with these the smaller ideas you know uh i i don't like uh uh poverty we should try to figure out a way to get rid of poverty your idea is to just give them give poor people money my idea is to incentivize poor people to make their own money right so i think yep. that's where the ethical code comes in a little bit is where not when it's not so black and white but it gets gray uh and to to uh, just assume and there's kind of this it, i mean it's just like culture you know you can't see culture uh you know it's hard to to really put uh, to describe all elements of culture in a, in a nice neat paragraph but you know it when you see it you understand you know there are differences in culture and how people kind of gravitate towards one culture or another um you know i think that's kind of how this this kind of social code goes like we all kind of you know not if we grew up you know around the same place that uh, yep. we ought not to do these things but it's that ought statement that really informs your view on any given situation. And that's what they're talking about here is there are sure. small differences in how we view situations. A centralized power cannot, uh, cannot have those differences. It needs to, to lie down in one view and it needs to define its own one view. And just like your decisions with ice cream, it's going to be hard to take all of that information in from every individual to try to make a cohesive view on some unitary plan. Yeah, and so I, I think you know, I agree. And I think the minutiae here, you know, I don't want to get too bogged down in this because that's one of the things, you know, Hayek says himself, we're not concerned here with whether the question, uh, with what, with whether it'd be desirable to have such a complete moral code. He's saying that like, we're not concerned with that. He said, he's merely saying that we, as society has progressed, we've actually had to allow for more freedom and more people to actually do things we disagree with. And, you know, I think he gives the example of someone in like a tribe somewhere where they were all bound by this like code that their tribe adhered to and so someone might be like no i don't want to get that tattoo or i don't want to go kill this other tribe but it's like uh, you're out of the tribe if you don't and so one of the things he's saying is like look maybe it'd be nice to have this maybe it'd be nice if we all agreed upon this whatever hierarchy of values you know all i'm saying is we don't have that and it would be difficult to accomplish that and that as society has progressed we've had to and and grown and that's the road that was abandoned he talks about in chapter one is that we've actually had to loosen up on our tolerance of people doing stuff we disagree with basically and so it, it's it's made it worse society and i think there's you know obviously pros and cons to this but where we have to allow for people to do things that we find morally abhorrent um because we might do things that they find morally abhorrent and so if i if if I want the right to tell them not to do that, then I have to at least say that, well, it makes sense for them to want the right to tell me not to do that. So we have to live in an agree to disagree kind of world. That's the, my right to wave my fist ends where your face begins kind of thing, you know, John Stuart Mill. And so um, like the point isn't whether or not this exists. And again, you know, I, he gets into this hierarchy of values kind of thing that I mentioned earlier. It, it's that it's not, it's not possible. It's not possible. And, and because it's not possible, this is where you get into this thing where, you know, I, the note I wrote was consensus versus coercion. As long as that we are in a system where we cannot achieve some kind of consensus because, you know, okay, maybe it'd be nice to have that. Okay. But we don't. So let's move on, you know, kind of thing is what Hayek is saying here. And so if we don't, then we have to be in some kind of system where we don't, the only times where we get consensus is when there is an agreed upon goal by a bunch of individuals. So it's not actually a collective acting. It's a bunch of individuals who all happen to have an alignment of goals. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. um, and so, and that's what he gets into there. He's like, look, 
there have been times because he shifts from this thing here to look, there have been times when a bunch of individuals banded together in agreement for what could be described as a common goal, but the goal itself wasn't an end. It was usually a means. So you have a hundred people in a room and they say, yeah, I agree on X, but they, but they see X as a means for each of those hundred people to all accomplish a different thing. It's like a highway or something like that, where it's like, yeah, I want to, I, I like the highway. I want to get on the highway, you know, because I can use the highway to travel to this place and you can use the highway to travel to that place. We don't have to agree upon where we're going to go. We just like the fact there's a highway. So we have all of these individual plans. We agree on the means to get there. And as long as you have a system that allows for that, that's great. You don't, and, and he contrasts that with one where someone is saying, and I think you talk about this. I might be getting a little ahead of myself if I am, um, you know, tell me to shut up, but where he talks about going on a trip and stuff um, and, and how uh, yeah. it, 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 you can't, they're all agreeing on something, but it turns out that they, no one actually decided where they all had different destinations in mind. Um, but anyway, we can get to that here in a minute. But, but the point is, is that this is a thing where as long as we don't have an agreed upon hierarchy of values for the entire society, people will be left behind. You're not going to have consensus. And if you don't have consensus, but you're still wanting to go there anyway, you have to use this thing called coercion. That's the main point. That's the thing. <laughs> People, I hope that if they get that, this is all consensus versus coercion. Socialism and collectivism is a thing that cannot get consensus. It can't, and it won't. And as long as it doesn't, and they still want to maintain their power, they'll have to get coerce those who disagree with them into compliance, into silence, into death, whatever, you know, um, so they can go on their, on their merry way. All they got to do is send them to re-education camp. It's not that bad. You know, and that's right. And I've been there and I'll tell you what, the food wasn't half bad. It wasn't, wasn't bad. And it fed you once a week, but you know, that was my fault. Well, that's what made it taste so good. <laughs> right. Stale bread. I think it was all pumpernickel or it was, uh, there it was a little, Pumpernickel's not bad, actually. I, I think uh, pumpernickel and rye is – well, I don't know if I've actually had a Reuben on pumpernickel. I might be getting confused here. Anyway, I might have uh, skipped way ahead in the notes there. No, but, no but actually – I, I wanted to transition to that next part there. You yeah, know? yeah, yeah. No, so you actually hit on something that's pretty good. Your, your road analogy actually comes into this next uh, paragraph here. But uh, I, I love the, the way you use it here as well. Um, but this is where he gets into the all-inclusive scale of values. So, mm -hmm. you know, you have this moral ethical code, which you kind of – uh, gives you what you ought to do, but then there's, there's also the scale of values in which, you know, we all have different needs and those needs change. So if you have one central entity determining what are, are the needs of the people, that kind of builds a scale of values as to what, what, what should we prioritize first, um, just what is going to be the highest priority in general, and even that you cannot uh, properly scale for the whole proportion of the country it's just impossible to do yeah. that normally you got to take one's got to take president it's normally going to be at the expense of the others because like i think we mentioned in the last episode you know a, a true free market economy um is not a zero-sum game but once a central entity takes part of that economy and production is no longer the goal of the economy producing more value it becomes yeah. a zero-sum game and that is where you need to build a scale of values in order to prioritize something normally at the expense of another 100 percent so he gets into a quote, not only do we not possess uh, such an all-inclusive scale of values, it would be impossible for any mind to comprehend the infinite variety of needs of different people which compete for the available resources and attach a definite weight to each. Talking about scale of values, so they're, they're scaling it, they're adding a, a weight effectively to all the needs. Definite weight is another way of saying uh, an agreed upon metric, like 
it's definite. Everyone agrees this is the value, and it and it's this valuable. There, no one wants it more, no one wants it less. Come on, for sure. Uh, for our problem, it is of minor importance whether the ends of of which any person cares comprehend only his own individual needs, or whether they include the needs of his closer, even those his more distant fellows. That is whether his whether he is egotistic or altruistic in the ordinary sense of these words. The point which is so important is the basic fact that it is impossible for any man to survey more than a limited field to be aware of the urgency of more than a limited number of needs. That's kind of what we talked about before. It's impossible for one person. I mean, they, they kind of- Or even a small group. Person. And, yep. and, and I mean, that's going to be kind of the democratic uh, socialist talking points. Well, it's not just one person. Yeah. It's, a, it's a democracy, yeah. right? And that's, we're going to get into democracy. that later is how, we'll how that, that is yeah. complete BS. I'm going to go on a freaking tirade <laughs> on that later. Uh, so to continue, whether his interests center around his own physical needs or whether he takes a warm interest in the welfare of every human being he knows, the ends about which he can be concerned will always be only an infinitesimal fraction of what ne of the needs of all men. So again, it doesn't matter how good of heart you are. It doesn't matter if Mother Teresa herself is running this thing. It's impossible to account for all of those needs. Um, yep. This is a fundamental fact on which the whole philosophy of individualism is based. It does not assume, as is often asserted, that man is egotistic or selfish or ought to be. Um, and I think some Ayn Randians might have some contradictions there, but, <laughs> but <laughs> uh, it yeah. merely starts from the indisputable fact the limits of our powers of imagination make it possible to include in our scale of values more than a sec sector of the needs of the whole society, and that since, strictly speaking, scales of value can exist only in individual minds, nothing mm. but particular scales of values exist, scales which are inevitably different and often inconsistent with each other. It's kind of what we talked about again last episode where a free market is so useful, not only because of its efficiency and effectiveness, but also it's the only way to order all of these different needs without coercion, right? It is... Yep. Is all of these different inputs that no government, no central body can possibly take in, but we can do via free exchange without uh, yep. a centralized power governing. Uh, so to finish this quote, from this, the individualist concludes that individuals should be allowed within defined limits to follow, to follow their own values and preferences rather than somebody else's, that within these spheres of individual systems of ends should be supreme and not subject to any dictation of, by others. It is this recognition of individual, of the individual that is the ultimate judge of his ends. The belief yep. that that as far as possible his own views ought to govern his actions that forms the essence of the individualist position. So yeah, right there is, yeah. is just I mean he 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 needs to define this individualist position. He's defined the individualist ethic in order to contrast it to what would have to be collectivism, what would have to go into this scale of values that is incompatible with all of these individuals yep. with their own values and their own, their own added weights to these values. Yep. And I think one of the things he says there that's so important, and actually, back up, one of the things you said there that was so important um, is that it's the reference to the last episode where it's like the free market is what makes it to where we don't need a plan. You have your plan. I have my plan and we can do whatever we want. And so, and that's what Hayek references is that the liberal in the good sense, um, not in the American sense, um, their job is like a gardener tending a gardener, a farmer 
It's like you're only trying to maintain the ecosystem in which things can thrive. You're not trying to tell the plant grow this way or whatever thing. You're just trying to cultivate the soil, maintain the ecosystem. You know, one of the thoughts I had was you can find all of these different things where it'll be like um, uh, your favorite Thanksgiving sides by state. You know, which states chose green bean or, you know, we got, um, what's this one? Okay. We got, we got cream corn in uh, Kansas. That sounds right. Corn in Iowa, you know, uh, brown gravy in Wyoming, you know, Colorado, mashed potatoes and all this other stuff. And so it's Miller yeah, Lite in Wisconsin. Like, yeah. I was going to say in Wisconsin, it looks like it's cat turds, you know? And so like whatever you're into, you can do. And so like, that's the point. That's what a free market is, is, is you can have all these states, right? And so let's say they re represent a conglomerate of individuals. They can bring whatever they want to Thanksgiving and you're going to have these disparate that that right there shows the disparate values, you know, and actually I, the first one that came to mind, I'm like, okay, I don't want to use this example, but I'll still tell you guys because it's funny is there is a Reddit page called data is beautiful. And they have a thing like that where it's like porn searches by state and you see which <laughs> this is some dark stuff on there literally and figuratively but it's you know and so you see where the values the values by in different state of what those people are into or whatever changes but that's what the free market represents and i know you're looking about googling it right now kevin don't do it but, yeah, <laughs> but I'm, anyway. I'm deleting my search history so i don't show up oh got it got it got it got it um anyway and so the the point but you got vaccinated so google already has access to it because of the microchips uh, i'm kidding, kidding nsa 80 percent kidding so anyway but but the, the point is, is that's the free market. The free market is you can bring whatever side you want. Or you could do all these other things. You just create a system where people can pick the thing that they want. And I was, you know, I was listening to a thing. Uh, James Lindsay was talking about what the opposite of that is. And he talked about how in the Soviet Union, there's only three hats, three hats, because there's no innovation. And it was all this top down thing. And so people were like, you get three hats. Those who are in charge, like we don't, we're not, we don't need to come with more hats. Here's the three hats we decided on. So that's that would be like if what's your favorite side dish by state? Every single one of them is mashed potatoes, right? It's like you only get this. We decided that, right? And so that's the contrast there, and that's where Hayek is saying these are not compatible. You will not get consensus on these things, and if you don't have consensus, and you're trying to force consensus, you're just gonna come up with ways to deal with those who dissent. And that is called coercion and it's immoral. Absolutely. Um, and, you know, I guess moving on to this next section, I, I really like what this uh, uh, next section brings up because it brings up, uh, well, one, one of like the main talking points of collectivists against, you know, the, the people who advocate against it is, uh, you know, every single time and, and Hayek was actually accused of this in a lot of the American criticism is every single time, you say planning, centralized planning is wrong. You're accused of saying, okay, this, every, every type of planning is socialism, right? Mm, every yep. type of planning is communism and the right falls into this a lot. You know, they refer to everything, you know, everything is socialism. They can just say, well, it's, this is just a, a meaningless word. Kind of how the, the left uses racist that turns into yep. a meaningless word. Um, yep. But but this kind of disarms them by saying like they're the crazy conspiracy theorists who thinks everything is socialism. Like we don't want full control. We just need to help people in the small sector and you know, it won't be any big deal. We get to keep your free markets. You get to keep all your, your fun little toys you get, you know, from, from free enterprise from your capitalist system. Uh, 
but there is a way for them to take control of a very small element that indirectly controls everything else. Yep. And this is kind of what he elaborates on here. And he uses a good, uh, you know, example of, of Germany. So, um, quote, we can rely on voluntary agreement to guide the action of the state only so long as it is confined in spheres where agreement exists. Also where he starts to bring up agreement, which is a huge theme for the rest of this chapter. Oh yeah. <clears throat> but not only when the state undertakes direct control in fields where there is, is no such agreement is bound to suppress individual freedom. We can unfortunately not indefinitely extend the sphere of common action and still leave the individual free in his own sphere. Once the communal, once the communal sector in which the state controls all the means exceeds a certain proportion of the whole, the effects of its actions dominate the whole system. Although the state controls directly the use of only a large part of the available resources, the effects of its decisions on the remaining part of the economic system become so great that indirectly it controls almost everything. So that's the part we're mm -hmm. talking about. Only the small little yep. bit of control in the small sector, or he calls it, you know, a large proportion of, of a small sector can control everything in there. So he uses the example here, whereas was, for example, true in Germany as early as 1928, the central and local authorities directly authorities directly controlled the use of more than half the national income. This is according to a German estimate that 53% of the national income they controlled, they indirectly control the whole economic life of the nation. If you control 53%, you can, you indirectly control everything else as well. There is then scarcely an individual end, which is not dependent for its achievement on, on the action of the state and the social scale of values, which guides the nation, the, the state's, action must embrace practically all individual ends. So this is the part where it doesn't take full control of the means of production in order to build a planned economy. It only yep. takes direct control of a large enough proportion of the economic resource to indirectly uh, control the whole economy. Once this form of in indirect control is established, individuals become subservient to the state as the social scale of values tips toward the state uh, participation, in all private economic and even social matters. Yep. And I think you had some good examples there, you know, um, of that. But before we get to that, like, you know, it's kind of one of those things where if you have someone who, if you have a, con a company that is, we're going to get into my percentages again, this joke was written. <laughs> um, so where if you have someone who, let's say I control 30% of a company and the next highest shareholder has 2%, right? I don't control the majority, but it, that all of the rest of those people are going to have to be in unanimous agreement to oppose me on certain things. And so when he gives the example of Germany controlling, what was it? 53% of the economy, something like that. Um, like if you control that much, everyone's going to have to run stuff by you, right? Like you, you're, you've got your fingers in all the pots. And so you don't have to control everything in order to influence everything in order to be the, the gatekeeper of policy on everything. Right. I mean, what is the if you look at government spending, um, I probably should have Googled this while you're talking instead of just like thinking about it out loud right now. But what is the U.S. Uh, government spending in terms of GDP? Um, U.S. government spending as percent GDP. I'm not going to use COVID. So we're going to go 20. Let's do mm -hmm. 2019. 
So the U.S. government spending for GDP was about 36% in 2019. That's a huge chunk of the economy. That's only 16% less than what was going on in Germany and what he's talking about there. And if you look at where it's at now, I bet you it's probably more than that. It's approaching 40%. I mean, shit, man, look at all the trillions they spent to do nothing but drive up inflation. Don't want to get into it. But the point is, is that that's so much money. That's so much money that, you know, in terms of the employers, you know, then the, I think the largest single employer of people in the United States is the government. The second largest, because I know that there's a distinction, Walmart is the biggest non-government employer of citizens in the U.S. I, I know that is Walmart, but I think the biggest employer uh, of people in the U.S. is government. People can fact check me on this, but I don't, I don't think I'm wrong because you're looking at teachers and all this other stuff. Um, and so that's huge. That's the point that he's making there is they don't have to control everything. So this idea that like socialism means you have to control everything, well, it leads to that, but it's not like it jumps from 10% to 95%. It incrementally goes up. And if you looked at that same GDP chart over the years, my guess is you'd see it doing this. You'd see it doing this. And so it's an incremental thing, which again goes back to the thing. I, I've been every single episode, and I know this will be the, the, the thing. I fight to go to like the conclusion about incrementalism. Mm -hmm. um, but that's the point of what is happening here is that it, it, it happens incrementally. Um, yeah. So anyway. Yeah. I mean, when we talk about – there's this common uh, – um, you know, they, they always want – when I say they, I mean leftists. They, they always want to claim that – uh, yeah, communism and Soviet Union is bad-ish, um, but you know, German Germany was practicing you know a, a right-wing ideology. You know, it wasn't socialism. It's like okay, does fifty-three percent of the national income not seem like socialism, and they control that? Uh, also, when it comes to like, you know, we see this expansion of direct control economically in the United States via the Federal Reserve and, and student loans that they control so much. I mean, almost every single person you know around in our generation has got a job is controlled somewhat by student loans. Uh, you know, federal student loans more specifically, but also there's social uh, controls in, in, in fields where there's divided agreements, like a big one, I think of gun control. And they go back to Germany mm -hmm. and their claim, you know, uh, the, the, the right wing claim in America right now is uh, look who implemented gun control, like G Germany implemented gun control. And the, the, the refute that I keep hearing, especially among people like on YouTube, which I think is hilarious is they didn't implement full gun control. They just took it away from the Jews. And I'm like, Oh, okay. Well that makes sense. I guess that's not any sort of gun control we should recognize. That's fine. Yeah. Right. You know, that didn't, that Oh, didn't what was the group that. they targeted again? Yeah. I don't know. I think, uh, uh, German African-Americans, is that a thing? I don't know. That's right. Um, yeah. There's like that millions of them. Yeah. African-Americans. Yeah. Um, but, but, but my point is that you see this type of social control in, in small areas where there's no agreement. Gun control is one of them. There's not, a huge consensus on gun control, even though a lot of media out outlets want to say there is uh, anti-discrimination policy, not a huge percentage of, of people actually agreeing with the policy there. And then something that I think we're probably going to see controlled more in the future is something like religious freedom and religious liberty that you see with the masterpiece, masterpiece cake shop um, kind of thing where they, you know, Colorado keeps going after that guy. You know, I think we're, we're seeing them control just enough of these social spheres where there's not enough agreement that they know that once they get the influence in those spheres, you know, it's like public education, like education. Yeah. Okay. It's your thing. You educate your children, you figure out what's best for them, but, but we own the public schooling system. So now we own a pretty good chunk of that. The only way you can get out of that is homeschooling your kids, right? Mm -hmm. The only way is to leave it completely. Um, so, you know, this idea of, of, 
uh, or or the the rebuttal of saying we don't want full control of the means of production. We just want you know enough of it that we can control what we don't control. Right. That's that's yep. kind of the line there.